we tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling with Heart podcast. I am your host, Camille DePutter, and with me today is Karen Eber. Karen Eber is an author, international leadership consultant, professional storyteller, and keynote speaker. Her talk on TED.com, How Your Brain Responds to Stories and Why They're Crucial for Leaders, has almost 2 million views. As the CEO and chief storyteller of Eber Leadership Group, Karen helps Fortune 500 companies build leaders, teams, and culture one story at a time. Karen is also the author of the book, The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories that Inform, Influence, and Inspire. So you can tell right away by the title of her book, we're going to have a great conversation today. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Camille. I'm so happy to be here. This is going to be so fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's so much juicy stuff that I think we can get into today. Um, So maybe we could start with your story. Like what, what's your backstory and how did you get here? I, uh, I like to say I've sat on both sides of the desk professionally. So I had a corporate side of the desk for 20 years where I was a head of culture in um, General Electric and one of the businesses and a chief learning officer there. And then a head of leadership development for a part of a business or in um, Deloitte. And so I was always trying to figure out how to navigate the the organizational hierarchy and influence the the people that really held the big budgets to make investments in technology and people. And um, that's where I got some of my best storytelling because I could slow down all of the people that could say no and influence those that could say yes. And then I opened my own company five years ago, Eber Leadership Group, to bring all of this expertise on how do you create healthy leaders, teams, and culture, and how do you use storytelling to influence and inspire I had a talk that went on TED.com that took off and that led to the book and and uh, a big focus on storytelling today. Yeah. And so when you gave that talk then, I'm just curious, like, was that at that point, um, you know, like an idea you had, like, oh, I wanted to sort of talk about storytelling. Did you have a sense of this is something I really want to lean into and emphasize and, and teach the world? Or was it just, you know, something that you thought you'd try and it took you in a new direction? I think I got pushed in a new direction. (laughs) I've always used stories in my career, um, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but I'm in these, been in these places where you're having to persuade people or I often am in leadership development roles where you're trying to introduce new ideas or shift thinking, or I work with C-suite teams on unpacking conflict. And so there's always been stories there, but what happened is that I started to get asked, how are you doing that? How do I tell a story? How do I break this down? And when I had the opportunity to do the talk, I leaned into that. And it wasn't that I thought like my whole career is going to be this, but mm-hmm. it just was something that I kept getting asked about so much. And it was a a kind of secret power to make things happen. So I went there and that then pushed me forward into a much bigger focus on storytelling because people connected with it. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I, I 
I love you sharing that because I also think sometimes we think, okay, I need to map all this out in advance or, you know, like I have to have some kind of master plan here. And while it's great to have a vision or have a sense of where you're going, uh, you know, as with uh, many different kinds of stories, sometimes just getting up and like trying something or putting something out there can open up new doors and lead you down different paths that you didn't necessarily know you were going to go down. Were you, as a younger person, like, were you kind of tuned into storytelling? Were you a writer or storyteller? Or was that something that was part of your life and interest at a young age? I was absolutely, I was the kid that we would go to the library every week or every two weeks. And um, one of my parents would have to come with me because you were only allowed to check out so many books on the children's library card. And I would be <laughs> able to read way too many. So I would be like cheating the system by checking out more on their card too. So I could have enough books to get me through the week. And my mom said that one time I was reading and so immersed in what I was reading that I walked into a wall, which <laughs> I don't remember. Maybe I hit the wall too hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that it's like always been something that I loved. I was one of those children that just loved to read and immerse myself in this world. I think as a younger person, I was a terrible storyteller. When you'd have those writing assignments in school, I would pick the title off the chalkboard and start writing, but I wouldn't think about like, what if, what is this story about and who's in it and what's going to happen? And then you'd, you know, get home and have to finish it for homework. And it would just be torturous because I had no idea. I was just writing and that's not storytelling either. Um, but I've always loved movies and jokes and all of these different things. And you start paying attention to, oh, that's really clever. I haven't thought about that that way. Or I haven't, you know, uh, they, they really surprised me in how they constructed it. And so I think I've always been a student of it. And as I got into the professional realm, I realized like, wow, this isn't just something to kick off presentations. It can really shift an awkward moment. It can make us have something to talk about at a networking hour and stuff. And so um, it became, as an introvert, it became a crutch because it's an easy way to have your words um, just be louder than who you are. Mm. I appreciate you adding that detail about loving stories, but as a young person, not necessarily being competent at shaping them and really thinking about them. Because I think that that experience, some version of that, maybe not doing well in English class or creative writing class or whatever that may be, uh, maybe struggling with that a little bit, getting maybe critical feedback, whatever those earlier experiences might be, um, and our own just natural sort of predilections, a lot of folks will tell me I'm not a storyteller or I'm not a writer or I'm not good at this. And one thing I love about your book is that you're telling folks you can do this. You can learn this. You can practice this. It's an incredible skill for life and for business, but it's, it's learnable. Can you share some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with what you said of we have these formative experiences where we're getting feedback about the way we're, <laughs> as I'm getting choked up, the way we're communicating. 
Maybe that's in writing in a story in school, or maybe that's how we're speaking. And those leave an imprint because sometimes we hear something that just is hard. It lands wrong and it it like makes us feel marked for life. And those moments we remember 20 years later, mm-hmm. we remember the, the comment on the top of the page in red. And that makes people immediately put themselves in this bucket of, I can't do this. And then you take that into the professional realm and you see things like a TED Talk where it looks effortless, it looks polished, it looks like the story is perfected. And well, clearly they have the storytelling gene, I don't. But what they don't recognize in most of these cases are, one, in TED Talks, they are often edited. But two, when you see a great storyteller, they didn't start telling stories that way. They evolved and learned and practiced and got better. You're just seeing them at a moment in time and thinking like, I can't do that because I don't have that gene. And so I don't want people thinking this just, I I didn't have that talent. You don't have the steps. And it's like anything. If you get the steps, you can start to work the process and figure out how to tell stories that make sense for you. Yeah. A hundred percent. I I really appreciate that. That's not just a gene. And, and also that you may not know behind the scenes as well, because, you know, we can, learn and and practice stuff and get better and more proficient at it ourselves. But also, as you pointed out, there's often editing behind the scenes. You know, you mentioned in video editing and you tell a bit of that story um, in your book too, of like coming to TED and realizing, oh, it's okay. Things will be edited. I can screw up here and, you know, it's going to be still come out polished. I don't have to get it perfect on my first go. And for written material as well, I think, you know, this is something that I want people to know in part because obviously it helps my business. I collaborate with my clients and help them write better and create better finished product, but also because I just want folks to know, no, other people are not just churning this stuff out. Perfect, easy, no help from anybody. That's not how it works. There's all kinds of stuff underneath the the surface that is available to you want it if you want it. And if not, at least know it's that it's not that there's something wrong with you or that other people just have a superpower that you don't. Yeah, I, I'm going to give people two nuggets that hopefully give them hope if they're feeling any of that. Um, one, I was at TED Women last week, and two of my favorite speakers who had just these really um, vulnerable talks that were very personal about you know life experiences that are hard, they blanked. They went to the side to check their notes. They stopped to get water. They said, I'm going to hold on. We're going to come right back. I'm going to pause at this moment and go do this and come back. And it didn't take away from their talk at all. In fact, we probably adored them even more for it. And the finished product will be this beautiful talk where you don't see any of that because no one wants to sit for that time. But, um, you know, one was telling this very vulnerable story and, and, about the loss of her father and she had to keep pausing and had to go check her notes because it's an emotional thing. So Mm -hmm. this happens all the time and things like that. And I always encourage people don't fret, don't have this fear of going blank, you know, have a plan because it happens today, right? You're in the restaurant and the, the person comes to take your order. And I just spent 10 minutes looking at this thing I wanted to order. And how did I forget it? Hold on, start at the other end of the table and come back to me, right? We navigate these, these moments in life all the time. And the same can be true when we speak. Um, the second piece of hope is that 
uh, in the book, I interview people that tell stories in different ways to give you just a, a nice little comparison of what it's like. And one of them is Dr. Paul Zak, who is very well known in the storytelling community. He's a neuroscientist and um, a founder of a, a neuroscience company, but he also writes a lot of articles and he sits at the center of sharing research and neuroscience with humanity and does a lot of work on, on the research of trust. And he shared that he will write like 80, 80 versions of articles that end up in Psychology Today or HBR or some of the different publications that we read. And so you hear that and you think like, how did you, like, really? 47 wasn't enough? Um, and his thing is he gets it out and then he keeps honing and he tries to think like, can I make this really tight and be amazing? And he just accepted this is his process and that he's going to work at it and get there and he budgets the time and his pieces are beautiful. And so don't expect that when you are strengthening this, that what you do first pass is perfect. The The perfection comes from, I think, playing with it and chewing on it and seeing how you can make it different. Yeah. I, I love both of those. I want to go back to the vulnerability one, the the one that you mentioned about, you know, folks sharing these very personal stories. Um, because vulnerability in itself is such a, a, a big, juicy topic. And it's something that I um that I talk a lot about and 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 try to, you know, help people navigate because it is, it can be tricky. It's like, how do we bring ourselves in into this? Be what we feel to be authentic, be willing to be vulnerable, but also still be professional, bring uh, a professional goal into it, be wearing our, our professional hats as we need to. What's your take on how we show up with vulnerability, but marry both the personal and the professional? I think there's a question early on that is important for each person to decide when they're telling a story, and it is what is personal and what is private? So every story I believe is personal, even if you're telling someone else's story, it's personal from your perspective. Why are you the one telling the story? What are you bringing to it? Otherwise, why are you telling the story, right? So every story should be personal, but that doesn't mean that you're sharing private details. And so it's up to each person to think through, where is my barrier for what I'm comfortable sharing if it's a story about myself and where am I not comfortable? I've worked with people that are uh, a woman that was on a, a team, a C-suite team of all men. They were about 15 years older than her. She was getting ready for a presentation and we're working on it. And she says, there's just one thing. I don't want to talk about my kids. I don't think that any of them had a very active role in their lives. I already feel different as a woman. I don't want this to be a negative against me in any, like, I'm just not comfortable going there. And so for her, that was the private of she wasn't going to go there. And that, that allowed her to free up her thinking for where do I want to go? So I feel like that's the first step of um, vulnerability is not sharing those private things that you don't, you're not comfortable with, but it is sharing personal, even if you're telling someone else's story. The second thing that I think is really helpful and freeing is getting clear on who you are. Okay. Disappointing. So, um, I was working with a, a man who was getting ready to do a keynote. He's in the UK, right? He's fidgety and he's just really uncomfortable. Like I could feel the discomfort radiating off him. And I asked him what was wrong. And he just kept saying, like, really nervous that they're not going to like it. And I asked him, if you were having me to your home for dinner, what would you make? 
And he said, bangers and mash. We were in the UK. So I said, great. Now, what do you think the odds are that everyone in this room, there are about 200 people in there. What do you think the odds are of everyone in this room liking your bangers and mash meal? He's like, no way. You know, there's some that maybe are vegetarian or they might find it too salty and it's not their thing. I said, great. Would you be offended? He said, no, just not their thing. I'm like, do the same thing with your talk. Your talk isn't for the people that don't want the bangers and mash. Your talk is for the people that you want to bring to your home and really give bangers and mash. And the same is too, each time you're doing a talk, you want to think about who is that target audience that I want to be bringing this idea to or this story to. And sometimes, particularly in business settings, we have that core audience, but there's maybe one or two people, a leader, uh, someone that has budget, you know, someone that's an outlier that's not quite in that audience that we tend to filter everything we want to say through that. And <laughs> that's not the way to do it. That should be a whole separate conversation. That's not something that should be, um, sorry, having a pet moment over here. Oh, so we're course. about to have a pet pop on screen. Um, <laughs> I can't wait. That's the best only part. The camera is facing the other way. It's hilarious. <laughs> um, but we tend to, to focus our presentation on the outliers instead of the core. The moment you get really clear who you are okay disappointing, the more freeing the vulnerability is. Because now you've done the work to know who is your audience and what's the idea you're trying to build and how do you tell that story in the best way to do that. So then the rest doesn't matter because it's okay if you disappoint them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so much good stuff there. And first of all, I love that you had, had identified that in your book, Personal Doesn't Mean Private. I think that's such a good... Um, a good little nugget for people to take away and to remember that also you can tell stories that are about you and your life or are meaningful to you, but it doesn't mean, okay, now I have to trot out the like <laughs> real, the most traumatic or dramatic stories of, you know, of my life in order for it to make an impact. But I can still look at, hey, what are the things that I care about or stuff that really matters to me. And I love that you emphasize that we can, even in sharing um, just stuff that like other people's stories, or maybe, and we'll, we'll get into this in a, in a moment, hopefully also like data or information, and it can still also be presented in a way that is personal, that is human, that matters. Yeah. This, the can I, can I share a, a different story that reinforces this? Because I think this is yeah. really important if you are a leader, because I'll often hear leaders say, um, I just don't, I don't want to share any personal stories. Like, and I think they're missing what a personal story is because um sharing the lessons learned behind things or what you're struggling with or what you learned is personal. So I love Sting. Mm -hmm. I think he's a wonderful performer. I was very excited to be able to see him in concert not long after I graduated from university. I was wanting to hear just more about his music. And I went and I got there and he came out and he said, hello, and he played some songs and he sang and it was great. And he said, good night. And that was it. And I was so disappointed because I wanted to hear a little bit about the story behind the song or something that made you connect with him. And I felt like I was listening to the radio. Now I was seeing Sting live. So it was still amazing, but it's so different than when you go to a concert and you get to hear more that helps you connect with the person. And so I was working with a leader preparing for an offsite 
was really concerned about what they could share and what they couldn't share. And I said, look, you're going to sing the songs, right? Don't worry about that. But what you need to do is tell them a little bit about how you wrote the songs or what they, what you've learned from the songs. Like you need to invite people into, um, in this particular case, the organization was going through shifts. So what are you thinking about it? What are you struggling with? What are you hoping for? What do you think about that in terms of your team? You know, there'll be some things you can't share, but when you start to get to those pieces, now you're telling us the stuff behind the song, which makes us feel like I got the the value of my admission. And so personal doesn't even have to be events about yourself. It could be some of those things that are actually very leadery to share. And it helps people understand you as a leader and gain more trust in you. Right. Even the sheer act of of talking like, you know, or if you're writing of like, of just adding something else, that experience, if you're able to do that and show up in a human as a human, not just, okay, presenter mode, you know, that in itself already builds a kind of connection because suddenly it feels like we're a couple of human beings or a couple hundred human beings here actually engaging with each other. It's funny, as you mentioned, Sting, I thought about, uh, David Bowie. And I mean, he, seeing Bowie live, I was lucky enough to, to get to do that a few times. And I mean, amazing, amazing musician. But one of the things that I really remember was the, like those little, little bits he did what Sting didn't. And he told jokes like goofy dad jokes and you know, talked about, you know, stuff about being a dad. So you saw this other side of him, the side that didn't, that didn't come out usually. And that, like, I remember that because that made it feel extra intimate and special. And as though we, you know, as though I somehow like actually got to meet David Bowie, even though I was in an arena. And you probably like every time one of those songs come on, you're probably like hitting the person next to you, telling one of those jokes or stories because you had that inside and tell. And so this is why it's such a good connection. And he probably didn't tell you anything private or anything too mm-hmm. vulnerable, but you felt something towards him. And so, um, you know, when people feel that vulnerability or that nervousness of, I don't want to do it, I love that story. Is a, It's like a, a helpful way to start to recognize there's a whole spectrum of what you can share. But the point is, share something more than just the songs, because that's what's going to create the the magic for you and employees. Yeah, love that. So you mentioned audience, and uh, this is a, this is something I wanted to hear your your take on. First of all, I love in your book how you spend a bunch of time about starting with the audience because this is something I'm always harping on myself. I tend to think folks focus too much on the craft. Uh, how do I just make it sound good? Unless in, in these sort of beginning stages of thinking and empathizing with your audience. But I also know there's a tension here, right? Like we want to think about our audience. Ideally, I would love people to know who their audience are, um, think through some of the kinds of questions that you have in your book. But by the same token, I also want folks to not overthink, not get stuck, not strip out who they are in their own natural style. And I've had some people ask me some some questions to this effect. I've, I've heard them kind of be like, well, but what if I don't know yet? And like, you know, what if I, I can't answer all of that? And what if I'm just starting at say even a new journey? Like I want to write a book or I want to explore different topics that I haven't explored before. And 
I don't really know who the audience is. And I, you know, I think this is important for me, but I'm not sure. And so I guess I feel like there's, there's these kind of two sides of things, the audience yourself, we have to balance them both. What's your take on navigating this tension or finding that balance? It's hard when you're not exactly sure who your audience is, but sometimes you know who it isn't. And so start there, make sure you're ruling out, but who isn't in this? So when I gave my TED Talk, I knew I was roughly going to have two audiences of one would be people in the theater with me where I gave the talk and the other would be the viewers online. And the viewers online could be like 10 years old to 99 and through all walks of life. But I could start to whittle down, okay, but for the viewers online, like, yes, I want some of those to enjoy it, but I really, the people in the major part of my bell curve are probably in business and probably this. And so to me, the the intent of thinking about your audience first, even if you know the story you want to tell, is meant to be like a five-minute exercise. It's not meant to be hours and hours. It's so that you can picture who are you speaking to and the examples and the way you deliver the story is feeling personal to them. So I tell a story in the opening of my TED Talk about a person dropping their phone down an elevator shaft and how a security guard works with them. If I was telling that story to a five-year-old, it would be the same plot points, but I would maybe use different words or maybe, you know, give an example that feels meaningful for them. If I was telling the story to security guards, I would lean into different things. And so to me, it's not meant to be a derailing thing. It's that when you don't start with your audience, you are often the uncle at the holiday table. And for some reason, it's always an uncle that is just saying that same story, stories over and over and over. And like, none of you even need to be there. He's not saying them for you. He's just saying them on the loop. And <laughs> you, you can all sit there like mouthing along because you've heard these stories over. Like, it doesn't matter. And that's what we want to avoid of you don't want to tell the story that it doesn't matter that the audience is there. You just want to try to, like, if you're looking through the lens of a camera, you just want to tighten the aperture enough that they can connect with it. Yeah, brilliant. I I love that. And I love how in both, uh, both this, your answer to this question, and also that was the other thing that you had shared before in response to my previous one about, like, who who the audience isn't and also who you're okay disappointing. You know, we tend to, to focus. I certainly do this, you know, who is this for and who, who do you want to speak to and, and how do you want them to feel or think, or what do you want them to do at, at the end of this? And we tend not to, to think so much on, okay, who it isn't for, who we can, can be okay disappointing, you know, who just simply is not, isn't, is not, are not the people that we're really, trying to reach and that also you you point out that the people that really are your audience and that you do really want to reach most of the time are rooting for you i was um one time was uh seeing a great uh local drag king perform and they were new and they were so nervous but they had said you know thank you to this person who told me before I went on that, like, just remember your audience is rooting for you. And everyone there was, you know, and if they like tripped up or whatever, everybody there was just really hoping for them to succeed and, and like 
actively rooting for them. And I, I kind of took away that little nugget myself. Cause I think for many folks, especially in this kind of climate, people are thinking who is potentially going to knock you down. Who's, who's rooting against you. Yeah. I, and you know, there's layers to that, right? So the, who am I okay? Disappointing is amazing for social media because there will be someone that is not in the center of your message and will still comment and be there. And it makes it so much easier to just scroll on by and not pay attention. Um, but in, you know, in the business world, that's like, say you're giving a meeting and, and, um, I, you might wonder like, well, what if someone interrupts me or what if the, the, the leader that I'm presenting to cuts me off and tries to jump ahead or, you know, we get so wound up thinking about some of those things that that messes up what we want to say. But when you can really think about who is in that center and, and start there and recognize the other pieces might need a different conversation or some other things, it allows for you to really speak to who you need to. Cause I find with myself when I struggle with this, if I'm worried about everyone other than the people with the intended message, the story is diluted because all my energy is going to like, don't say that and I'll avoid that. And how do we, instead of going to the story, but if I can kind of put up the blockers and focus on the story, then the rest takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I've found over the years. Um, also of, uh, of, public speaking, but also with interviewing people. So in, in my career in various capacities, I've done a lot of interviewing of, of people. I, you know, write a lot of people's stories for them. And so whether it was more in kind of a, like a journalistic or ghostwriting capacity or um, what have you, I, I, I learned fairly early on that if I just really paid attention to the interaction, like, what that person was saying, not thinking about, well, am I doing a good job? Am I asking the right questions? And, you know, I might have to be thinking at the back of my head what the story is, where I need to lead it, et cetera, but not overdoing it, like leading with my curiosity and genuine interest in the person in front of me. Then a lot of what could have been nerves or shakiness or whatever would, would kind of go away. Just out of curiosity at this point, like you've done a fair bit of public speaking, you know, you're doing tons of podcasts now. When you are are public speaking or in situations like that, do you have nerves? How do, how do you uh, feel in those situations? I do. I am an introvert um, that gets energy from quiet time. So first thing I have to do is be really mindful of my energy. And I um, like speaking at the end of a day, I would have to make sure I have a couple hours block somewhere to really get myself into the right space and the right energy because I can't um, in a keynote, that's very hard. So first thing is I'm very aware of my energy because as a keynote, you are bringing the energy to the group. You've got to bring it because otherwise it is terrible for everyone. Um, second is that if I am just back to back and around people and feeling really depleted, that's hard for me. And so I will typically um, make sure I have a chance to take a walk and get myself into the mind space and really think about how I want the audience to feel. Um, I am like, the stage is never about me. It's always about bringing ideas at scale. And so I'm always focusing on what can I help this audience do and how am I doing that? So it's not about being on a stage with a spotlight. It's about how can I 
educate or change thinking or, you know, give them something that, that gives them something different. So when I feel that energy, I try to focus it on those things and then just make sure I'm keeping my energy in the right place so I can deliver on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Very smart. Both of those make a lot of sense. And I love that too. Of just like, okay, looking at the big picture, like, what am I really here to do? Why am I doing this in the first place? Why does this matter? Because when you connect to that energy, then it, it can all kind of flow and also shift to, to excitement and to commitment and presence and not this stuff that is about more like our own egos and are we good enough and, and so on. Part of it also, I think, is knowing who you are. So for me as a speaker, I am never going to be Fozzie Bear. <laughs> I'm not on stage going like, waka, waka, waka. Like, that's not, I am not the crazy high energy. Like, that's not who I am. But I do bring a warmth and, uh, you know, people describe like, you feel like a friend on stage. And so I'm there in a way that is, you know, I have to get your energy up because we're going to talk about a lot of different things that are things for you to process. But I also know I am not there that you're not going to be, you know, you're side splitting with laughter the whole time. You're going to be like, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, that story is really great, right? You're going to feel like you're talking to a friend. And so part of it is knowing that. And then what does that feel like for me? And how did you figure that out? Because I was never going to be Fozzie Bear. I just can't, <laughs> like, I think we all know our different energies and where we idle and what we do. And so you notice when you're in conversation with people or when you're in front of a group, now I have dry wit and there's humor and I bring people on stage and there's a, a surprise element even for me. But I knew that I'm not going to be that keynote that is like having you roar with laughter every few minutes because it just wouldn't feel real. So I think once Mm -hmm. you get clear on what feels true to you and you test that and you see from others, then from there you think like, how do I design something around this that is going to get outcomes that are meaningful? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that because I mean, it's interesting, I think folks have maybe heard or seen or been told of following certain templates. Oh, well, you need a joke here. You need, you know, and it's like, if that works for you, great. But I think for most of us, the approach you just described is going to work better, feel more natural, but also set you up to to be able to to connect more genuinely in, in a way that, you know, then doesn't feel like maybe like, the uncle that you that you described at at Thanksgiving or you know somebody who's kind of up there giving a a, a stiff speech um a motivational speaker that just feels so um rehearsed or polished in a way that you feel like oh none of this is genuine mm-hmm. like yeah their message is okay but this just feels almost like a bit of an act and a performance and that doesn't feel motivating and so I think you always have to start with where you are and then what that can look like. Right. Yeah. I want to circle back to um, something that uh, when we were talking about like the the personal stories and, and the whatnot, and that is then balancing this notion of, per, you know, bringing the, the personal or, or the human or, or what have you with the nuts and bolts of the information that you are trying to convey. and. You devote a whole chapter on data and storytelling. Why Why did this whole require a whole chapter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt like a whole chapter was actually shortchanging it. 
Um, so a lot of the work I do is with people in business that are spending a lot of time communicating data. You know, when I sat on the other side of the desk, I would sit in meetings, like wanting to braid my eyelashes out of boredom because of how awful some of these meetings were going line by line through 10 font data that there's too many things on the slide. And so I felt like, you know, my theme through all of this is the the most generous thing that your audience can give you is their attention. And do you just want to waste that talking at them, not prepared, really thinking about how you can enlist them in the cause or inspire them or share information? You know, you have a choice to make. And so a big piece of that is in data. And I feel like there are many different books out there on data visualization, which are amazing. Um, but there is a you don't start with visualization. Visualization comes after you really thought through what you're trying to do with all of this and why you're collecting it and, and what the story is. So it's like what happens today, I feel like, is that, you know, it's like the scientific hypothesis in middle school when you were doing your science projects where you do the project and then you write the hypothesis, what would happen? Like that's backwards. You're supposed to write the hypothesis and test it. And that's what we should be doing with data. And instead, what happens is we collect just reams of data, open up our favorite vis visualization tool and figure out what cool charts we can put together and then just slap a bunch of charts together like it's a PowerPoint quilt. And then we think about what we're going to say. And that's just backwards. And so I wasn't trying to come at it from the visualization standpoint. I was trying to come at it from the human understanding standpoint. And how do we start to think about this different so that anytime you are communicating data, you're being really thoughtful of the story you're telling and how to do it. And I wanted to take people through the steps to think about of what that looks like for data specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you think that, uh, that people tend to split up in their brains? Like, okay, I'm going to tell a story when I'm, I don't know, let's, I, I don't, I don't know who they are or anything, but you mentioned like somebody telling a personal story about the passing of, of their father. And we think, oh, that's story. Okay. Well, but I'm presenting customer data or insights, or I'm presenting, you know, like, corporate information here. <laughs> this isn't time for storytelling. This is not story time. How, yeah. how, how do you think about that or help or help leaders like weave this together? Yeah, I think there is this concern that if I tell a story, it is less serious, less factual, less meaningful, less truthful. And the challenge is if you don't tell a story, the data doesn't speak for itself. What happens whenever you're putting up a chart or data People are immediately trying to guess what it means. And we're each going to have different interpretations based on our experiences, even with the most simple chart. So I, I will um, have a chart that is, um, I did a guest lecture at Purdue University. And their students had to submit a certain number of papers for a class. And with one month left in the semester, so they're supposed to submit four papers. With one month left in the semester, like 20 people had submitted four papers and maybe another 20 had submitted three and then the 300 people hadn't submitted any. So I put up this very simple bar chart of how many completions were done. And I asked people, well, why do you think that is? And there were a whole bunch of different opinions, like an immediate assumption is, well, procrastination. But what happened when you started to unpack it was 
um, that the semester had a higher than average enrollment rate. And so now you have people that are working and enrolled at the same time and are still trying to balance their workload and their schoolwork. And so it wasn't that they were procrastinating, it's that things were in process or some people were being selective. And so you go through this process and what we realize is there's like 10 possible reasons why the numbers were where they were. But if I put up this very simple bar chart your mind is going to try to figure it out and your reasoning is going to be different than mine and someone else's because we all have different experiences. Our mind's making assumptions based on our experiences. So what happens so often with data is we put out these charts that we think like they speak for themselves, not recognizing that we are each having different interpretations. And then we go to have a discussion about it and we're not even talking about the same thing and we don't even know. So when you don't tell the story and take people through it, you are risking different understanding, disagreement, and confusion. You also are misguided in thinking that data are fact and stories are not. You can manipulate either one any way you want to. The benefit of telling a story is that you are going to take everyone to the same starting point. Even if they don't agree, you are level setting on where you're starting that conversation. And often the stories with data where there's um, contentious data or really difficult decision or there's a lot of emotions, often the best stories have nothing to do with the data. It's when you tell a story on a different topic, but the takeaway is going to help shift thinking. And so I've done this with C-suite teams that they were facing um, millions of dollars in quality issues. And I ended up telling stories about other organizations that were struggling with that and why they were struggling. And as I tell the story, their defensiveness lowers because they recognize like, we're not the only ones struggling with this. So we don't have to hold on to that shame. And it's okay to be open to have this discussion. So sometimes you're going to tell a story about the data to bring meaning. Sometimes you're going to tell a story about something else because you're trying to get people to be open and lower defensiveness. But your goal in all of it is to bring everyone to the starting line, to the same starting line for discussion. And when you don't, you're just risking confusion and not realizing how much difference there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. It actually it brings up another kind of question that I wanted to ask you about, which is, Using storytelling for handling challenging internal communication. So massive layoffs, buyouts, mistakes, yeah. losses, unpopular decisions. Um, I mean, this office. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, like this is a, a, a big topic, but I'm just curious about some of your kind of top thoughts on the role that then storytelling can play in these kinds of sticky communications? So if you are asking yourself, what story should I tell for X? You probably shouldn't. Um, If it is a policy change, if it's like something like return to office where there's a mandate or a decision made at the company level, or if there's a layoff, or if there's a um, even positive, like everyone's getting an extra bonus or an extra whatever... I think it's better to treat people like adults and communicate straight when there are things like this that are just decisions made. When you try to dress it up, people sniff right through that and they can feel this just feels like I'm now being handled. I'm now being managed. You're giving me the party line. This feels gross. And now I no longer trust you. As opposed to when you communicate it and why we're doing it, when you do a straight communication, people appreciate you being straight with them. 
So I find that when it's like regulations and policies and these big decisions, you should not be trying to dress them up in a story because you wouldn't appreciate it and other people don't. When it is, we're navigating change. Um, we are, you know, maybe restructuring. There's pieces of restructuring. I think it makes sense to share a story in pieces that it doesn't. But definitely the day-to-day project level where we're trying to navigate different things that are happening. Those are moments for stories where we can create the shared connection and idea. But the bigger the mandate, the policy, the the fewer moments you should use a story. Yeah, I appreciate the nuance there because it's... Uh... I think often people have this idea that, you know, I have to dress something up, you know, or kind of put a, a bit of like a, a spin on it. Or, and, and so often, and I think this goes for when you are storytelling too. And to me also, I mean, storytelling is, is communicating in, in, in so many different, different ways. So really just being able to be direct, be clear say what you actually mean is going to be more effective than trying to, you know, oh, sound clever or sound smart or, uh, you know, manipulate people some type of way. Yeah. I think also, you know, we often think like, what is the right story for blank? Um, And it's very rare that there's one story that is ever the one that is right. So I always think this is true for entrepreneurs. Like, your origin story doesn't matter. And I know that sounds weird, but why you started isn't necessarily what you're doing now or the problems you solve now or what you're doing. And, and there's probably so many nuances in that, that there's not one story that, that connects to all of it. There's a series of stories and moments. And so if, if Amazon was telling their origin story, they would still be talking about selling books. And there are much more than books right now. And so we evolve. And so things like one story for an entrepreneur is less important than small specific stories. And the same is true in any business or any moment where there's a need for something. It's very rare that there is just one story that's going to do all of it. Like maybe in a sales pitch, you're looking for one story. But more specifically, it's specific moments. It's specific pain points. It's different challenges where there's multiple stories that make sense. And so often with a big policy change, you communicate it straight, but then as it's shaking out, there might be moments for stories of what some of the great teams are doing, what the great leaders are doing, things like that. We put a lot of pressure on finding the perfect story, but it's very rare that there's just one story that's always going to be the solution for what you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, you know, also then the benefit of engaging with this work in an ongoing capacity to sort of build that story vault so that you have kind of multiple stories at your fingertips to to tell and retell when the as as the occasion unfolds, but also to be able to continue to find new new experiences, new moments, new things in your life that you can then go on and, and tell uh, stories and be able to continue to share them and to evolve your ideas too. Like, great, you and your business or your startup, you may have that that origin story or that kind of key story about why you do what you do, but it may be evolves that you update it, you look at it a little bit differently, or you use different parts of it. And and truly you may be able to look back and say, okay, well, now I, now I see this a little bit 
differently. Like now I have different uh, applications of this or a different view of really what it all means. And I think when this is part of part of my issue too, with folks just getting so hung up on the particular wording, like, yes, if something's going to print, let's make it as good as we can, but you're never, you, you really shouldn't find just that perfect word, great, done. Now I never have to think about it again or or touch it again. Ideally, this storytelling is an ongoing, lifelong process. I'd also be curious about then. So we spoke to internal communications from like more of the, you know, factual stuff or challenging stuff. What about from the perspective of company culture and building trust and and that sort of thing. I mean again, I know it's a a big topic, but are there any words of of advice or kind of thinking on that that you'd share? Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics because you know, organizational culture is the worst behavior that we're willing to tolerate because we're experiencing culture on our day-to-day teams. And so when something happens, if a leader doesn't address it or they let it fly, like say someone makes an off color comment that maybe is inappropriate. No one says anything. Well, now we just made that okay in our culture. And our culture is a collection of all of these stories. And so when you're sharing stories and you're creating community for stories, you are creating culture. So if on a team, you have a regular habit of like, let's talk about what we've learned. What were some things that went really well? Who's someone on the team that you want to recognize something that they did? Um, you know, what are some mistakes we want to reflect on? You're immediately creating a learning environment, hopefully creating an environment where it's okay to talk about these things. You are establishing trust. Um, you know, the stories create these moments where we're not only learning some different things of like what a great leader does or what a great team does, but we're learning from each other. And it is really reinforcing what is it that we're valuing. And so it is, um, you know, I do think there's a lot of opportunities to share what do these great projects, great leaders, great teams look like that go way beyond competencies and all of that. But these are the stories that help you learn and think, oh, I want that. Right now, what you see really popular in learning and development is this cohort-based discussion because we share experiences and we learn from each other. Um, I do think on teams regularly creating the opportunity to learn about what each other's doing is going to have us build empathy for some of those challenges and see how do we work together better. It's going to create trust, you know, and especially when you build in reflection and recognition. So all of those can make such a difference in the day-to-day and you're never done with culture, but a thoughtful story either that you're sharing or someone on the team is sharing and having a regular habit about it is going to collectively keep you where you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the the reflection and recognition, those are two big pieces. As you're saying all this, and I'm thinking back about the discussion that we've had today. How do you think leaders with so much already on their plate and so many responsibilities, many of which often feel so urgent and, and pressing and demanding, how how do they and how can they make time for this and continue to even like invest their their efforts, their resources, their energy into it? Yeah, I, I think it's never been harder to be a leader. I think that it's not just 
leading a team and developing employees and shaping culture. We're all now dealing with global environments and things that impact employees in their day-to-day. And that's a lot. And and many leaders, I think, are afraid to enter conversations that they don't know where it's going to go. So there's a lot of things pulling on you. And it's very easy in those moments to focus on like, what are the technical things I need to get done? What are, just give me the like checklist of expectations. Mm-hmm. We as leaders are managing energy and not time. So we all have the same 24 hours and maybe eight, nine-ish hours at work. And the difference is how those hours are spent. And someone that's feeling really engaged and valued gives more calories per hour than someone that isn't. You know, when you don't have trust on a team, a lot of the energy goes to dreading work, anticipating which version of the meeting is going to happen and and all these things that impact it. And so when you think of your role as managing energy, you then think, how do I maximize this? And storytelling will buy you more energy than communicating or talking at people. Because if you tell a thoughtful story, then the person feels seen. They see their own version of the story in their head. They're making their own choices about what they want to do. They're tapping into their own commitment and doing stuff. And so stories have a way of extending your leadership, of helping people align and work through things and and have a, a better ROI. It may take a little more time up front for you to figure out your own process and your own approach to storytelling. But on the back end, the return you can get can be stronger than if you're just quickly coming in, talking at people and leaving. Brilliant. Love it. Well, I think that's a great place to end the conversation. Karen, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate uh, everything that you're doing out there in the world to help educate people about storytelling and invite them into this process and your, your thoughts on team building and leadership and culture as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Storytelling with Heart podcast. Want to turn your thoughts into leadership and your ideas into words that make a difference? Find me and discover more free resources at www.camilledeputter.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to my email newsletter where I share stories, free tools, and other storytelling guidance. And never forget, your story matters. Oh,